0: If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me this morning, once again, to the Gospel of John, chapter 11. John, chapter 11, we began this chapter last week, and we will finish it this morning. And as we pick up the story where we left off last week, just a reminder, those of you who maybe weren't here, we are in the wake of a tremendous event of a week ago. And for those who are, as we pick up the story this morning, that was... Sooner uh, than a week ago, but for us it's a week ago. Jesus has just spoken life back into a corpse. The seventh sign in this book of signs, as it's often called, uh, the Gospel of John, this is the seventh sign that John has compiled. And it's an amazing scene, this raising of Lazarus from the dead. And it's one that taught us much about the Lord, about his heart, about his character. And of course, we could say that the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11 uh, is really just a picture of what he does for us all spiritually, right? We've all been made alive in Christ. We've all been raised from the dead. But I don't want us to focus so much on that that we forget the fact that this really happened, like in time and space, they opened the tomb with a rotting corpse inside and out walked a man with his blood flowing and his heart pumping. As you might imagine, that kind of thing is going to create some waves. And that's what John explores in this next section of John chapter 11. And my hope is that the Holy Spirit will use it in our lives this morning to prod us to ask some similar questions of our own hearts as we ask and think about the questions that are asked here in John chapter 11. And so I invite you to stand and listen to the reading of God's Word this morning if you're able. John chapter 11, verses 45 through the end of the chapter. And then I'm going to jump down to chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. I'll explain while I'm doing that a little bit later, Uh, but listen as I read. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that is raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Now the chief priest and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. We've jumped now to Jesus re-entering. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him... Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Please go ahead and be seated. What are we to do? That's the question that is asked in verse 47 of our passage. The one that stood before all who had just witnessed what Jesus did or who had heard about what Jesus just did did what now what are we supposed to do with that well verse 45 in our passage is the first response and what many people did what does it say there they believed they believed jesus's actions had brought validity to his words and they had no choice but to follow this man. To follow him and to wrestle with the ramifications of what that might mean on their lives. But verse 46 in our passage this morning gives us the other camp. The other response. Not only did they not believe, but they couldn't just walk away either, could they? No, instead they, they tattled. They found others who could fuel their unbelief and make the problem go away. And it's this unbelief, particularly in the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that John focuses on here in the latter half of chapter 11. Now, we've talked about unbelief before, right? Right? Just a couple chapters ago, just one chapter ago, we talked about unbelief as we were given a glimpse by Jesus of what is happening behind the scenes of unbelief. Remember? Well, today, we focus on the nature of unbelief on the surface. What's happening on the surface? As one pastor called it, what's the anatomy of unbelief? So I'd like you, as we walk through these verses this morning, I'd like you to hear two truths as we first pack, unpack unbelief, and then secondly, as we find comfort in the God that we worship this morning. Let me just say this before I go into the one truth, the first truth. We may not be unbelievers here this morning. I know many of you aren't. Your firm followers of Jesus Christ. But I will say that we all struggle in unbelief in various ways. We all struggle to live out what we believe. So the first truth is this. Unbelief knows the truth, but hates it. Unbelief knows the truth, but hates it. I think that's the first thing that we see in this passage. It reminds me of a song. How do you solve a problem like Maria? I was reminded of this scene in one of the classic movies of our time, The Sound of Music. Right? Right? Maria is not behaving in nun-like ways, and, and so she must be dealt with, and so the nuns of the convent gather together to discuss, and of course, because it's a musical, they sing. How do we solve a problem like Maria? How do you take a cloud and pin it down? Well, while relevant, that was a light-hearted scene. In the movie, I guarantee there was no singing at this emergency meeting of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The council. But they're there for a a similar reason. How do we solve the problem of Jesus? Now this council that meets here in John chapter 11 is called the Sanhedrin. It's this formal governing religious body composed of about 70 members and chaired by the high priest of the nation of Israel. They were supposed to be holy men. They were supposed to be experts in the law, in the Scriptures. They were supposed to be leaders who reflected the Good Shepherd and shepherded the people of God effectively. But Jesus had rebuked them for failing to do all of those things. This is likely not the first time that they have met together to discuss the problem that is Jesus of Nazareth. But their concern by this point in his ministry has really reached a crescendo, right? And so the meeting begins here in chapter 11 with with a question and a statement. What are we to do for this man performs many signs? Now let's just pause right there because maybe you're wondering how the heck does John know what's going on in this meeting because John probably wasn't there I doubt John was invited I think probably we can assume that either Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea are the ones who have relayed to John after the fact what was the content of that meeting But back to the meeting, notice they can't deny the signs. Jesus' power is irrefutable. It's undeniable. But rather than standing in awe of who Jesus has revealed himself to be and aligning their world with what they've witnessed, their pride, which we'll get to in a moment, helps them ignore what is right in front of them. Now taking a step back from this scene, this of course is something that the Apostle Paul will zero in on in his letter to the church at Rome. Listen to Romans 1, verses 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so that they are without excuse. Now the Pharisees' relationship to the person of Jesus, and our relationship to the truth of God, according to the Scriptures, it's not all that complex. We know the truth. All of humanity knows the truth. We just don't like it. Why don't we like it? Well, the religious leaders of Jesus' day show us that as well. We don't like the truth because it messes with our agenda. Verse 48. They say if we let Him go on like this, Everyone is going to believe in Him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Now that might sound like on the surface that they are doing what they have been called to do, right? That their concern is for the safety and security of Israel, of the people of God. But, but we know better. John has already shown us, Jesus has already called them out on their self-centeredness, And on their focus on self-preservation. So make no mistake, this concern that they have, it's about them. It's about their place. Their place, what they're speaking of there, is the the temple. Their stomping grounds, where, where they wielded their power and influence. Supposed to be a place where people can come and worship God and recognize His grace. And yet, these heavy-handed shepherds brought their own influence into that space. They had worked hard to get into positions of, of coziness with the Romans. Now this man, Jesus, threatens to upend it all. Right? Not only will the people begin to look at Him if they don't do anything... But a popular leader with power among the populace will draw too much attention and eventually will draw the ire of the Roman Empire. And the worlds of these men will come crumbling down. They know in their heart of hearts that he is true. But acknowledging that, it brings too much disruption into their lives. And it's this denial of what is plain that is at the heart of unbelief. You see, if you're an unbeliever this morning hearing this, you need to wrestle. Really wrestle with what you know. With what you've heard. With what you've seen. And not just bury it in your pride. Not just bury it Because it doesn't fit your agenda. But believers, Church of Jesus, there is a challenge here for us as well. Because as I was thinking about this passage, as I was meditating on myself, it is unbelief that is really at the heart of our struggle with sin. Sin. Well, Paul spoke about the plight of unbelief in God in chapter 1 of Romans. In chapter 7, he speaks about the plight of Christians as he speaks about his own life. See if this speaks to your heart and, and your experience. He says in Romans 7, 15 and following, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Jumping down to verse 22, for I delight in the law of God. I believe it's true, he's saying, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. What I'm trying to say is that when confronted with temptation we war, we wrestle with believing what God says is true. Don't we? We wrestle believing that what He holds out for us is good. And not this sin that I have dangling before me that I want to indulge in. And then at times, Jesus is simply a threat to our status quo. He is a threat because we're comfortable. We don't want Him. We don't want His demands on our life to upset things. See, this was what was happening to the religious leaders, to the Sanhedrin. And there's obviously a great danger here. Our passage illustrates it in the starkest of terms. If we jump back into the account... Suddenly, this man enters the scene, Caiaphas. Now, history tells us that Caiaphas was high priest of Israel from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36. That was a longer than usual tenure for a high priest in the nation. So when our text says in verse 49 that he was high priest that year... Uh, John is saying something like that fateful, historic year. He wasn't saying he was just high priest for that one year. It's kind of like us saying uh, September eleventh, two 2001, George W. was president on that fateful year. Of course, he was president for more years than that year, but that year in particular, and that's what John is saying. So Caiaphas speaks up, and the first words out of his mouth are words that, according to the historian Josephus, uh, tells us is typical of these guys. Rude, arrogant, and condescending. Do you, you, you see that from Caiaphas' mouth? He essentially says, you guys are a bunch of idiots. Of course, that's my modern interpretation. You guys are a bunch of idiots. Here's the deal. This guy's got to die. So Caiaphas says, killing him is better than letting Him tear apart our nation and in parentheses, everything that we've built and hold dear. And we look at this scene and we say, whoa, that escalated pretty quickly. Here in this religious gathering, at the suggestion of its chair, Suddenly, murder? A violation of the seventh commandment is on the table. And it's not just on the table, but verse 53 says they all get on board. Jesus is condemned to die guilty before a trial is even called for. They may hide behind charges of blasphemy or other high and mighty and righteous things. But this is where Their unbelief has led them to. And it's not just Jesus. That's why I read that little bit in chapter 12 as well. Lazarus, that we talked about last week, Lazarus is this living, breathing, talking evidence of the fruit of Jesus' life. You can't have that walking around. We've got to kill him too. What did he do? Could we plant the charge of blasphemy on him? No! we just got to murder him. It's pretty remarkable that it has come to this. But this is how unbelief and sin works. A little searing of the conscience leads to more and more callousness. Leads to rationalizing our behavior leads to considering what we once thought was unthinkable. Brothers and sisters, don't let unbelief go down that road. Don't let unbelief get to that point, to a hardness of heart that so easily looks the other way. Don't start down that road. I think this is the application for us. Don't start down that road of, of little compromises. Because they will compound. So what are you to do with Jesus? Believe. Belief. Believe what He says is true and is good all the time. Believe and humbly follow. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth time. As you're confronted with that sin that your pride so wants to indulge in, and yet Jesus' words... And His presence and His goodness is right there. Believe what Jesus says. But that's not all our passage has to teach us. We see here what we read in the book of Proverbs in that wisdom literature. Proverbs 19.21 says this, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So the second truth is this. Nothing can frustrate God's plan. It's the second thing we see from this passage. Not just a lesson, a challenging lesson about unbelief. But nothing can frustrate God's plan. And this is an incredible balm for our souls the unbelief of our world, the unbelief in our own hearts is, is certainly frustrating. But at the end of the day, our sovereign God rules over everything. And you see, as John traces these events, as he recounts the evil plans of those who would eventually succeed at killing Jesus, he makes clear that there is more going on. Right Back to Caiaphas' words in verse 50. It is better for you, Caiaphas says... That one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And then John, John's commentary on this statement is verses 51 and 52. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, not only for the nation, but also to gather all into one children of God. So what exactly is John saying is going on here well John is saying that God spoke through Caiaphas not what Caiaphas intended to speak but what God intended to speak Caiaphas may have veered from Yahweh in unbelief but the office to which he holds still matters right that office of high priest that's God's office He ordained it. He put Caiaphas there. And he has not abandoned its usefulness. Here's how one theologian says it. Israel's highest official, with all the authority associated with his office, spoke of Jesus' death as the only way in which people could be saved. You see, he spoke more than he knew If he dies, they live is what he says. And how true are those words? Caiaphas spoke here of what we would call substitutionary atonement. The sacrifice that was soon to take place. A sacrifice that his calloused unbelief will help bring about. Indeed one man must die in order to save a people. And so Jesus will go to that cross, and Jesus will take the sin of all of His people, all those whom the Father has given Him, the sin of you and me, and He will take that upon Himself, paying the debt that we owe, and bringing us eternal life. This He will do not just for the nation Of Israel that Caiaphas claims to love, but for all who are his own. You see, Caiaphas spoke those words in wickedness. But God is greater than man's wickedness, God is greater than man's sin. And Caiaphas wasn't, he wasn't some puppet on a string forced to say these things. No, he said what he wanted to say. And he is responsible for saying it. And here we, we dip our toe back into that concept of antinomy, that mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility coexisting. God is doing here what he's done before. Remember the saga of Joseph in the Old Testament? Remember what he says to his brothers At the end of it all, Genesis 50, verse 20, he says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The Apostle Peter will proclaim a similar truth after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension in Acts 2.23. He will say, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's sovereignty, there it is. You crucified and killed. Human responsibility. The point is this. Nothing can frustrate God's plan. Even the timing of all this is on His term. John tells us that the Passover is being prepared. Meanwhile, Jesus retreats. He knows the temperature has gotten too hot. He needs to get away. From those who seek his life. And so the troop, while the Passover is being prepared, Jesus is 12 miles away, the true Passover lamb, just waiting for the Lord's timing. Because when Jesus gives up his life, he will do it on his own terms, in the Father's timing. And in just a week's time, he will re enter Jerusalem, and then the dominoes will all fall. Brothers and sisters, we worship and serve a big God. That's what this reminds us of this morning. A God who doesn't change. A God who isn't surprised. A God who admittedly doesn't fit. As David says, your thoughts are too wonderful for me. Too high, I can't attain it. See, the fine point of application of of Caiaphas and how God used Caiaphas here. It's a particular encouragement to me, right? As I stand before you, a weak, sinful vessel. The application is this God speaks truth through imperfect, even crooked teeth at times, right? He shoots straight with bent arrows, he uses jars of clay like you and me to hold a treasure of immeasurable worth and that should be encouraging to all of us in our weakness in our frailty it's not about you and how strong you are and how much you're going to do for God it's about how strong he's going to show himself in your weakness But the broader application speaks to us all loudly. This kind of God orchestrating these kinds of purposes, even in unbelief, really sets us free from being consumed, I think, by the anxiety of what we see around us, by the chaos that we feel around us. And it's an invitation to live a different kind of life, a life of peace, of joy, knowing that nothing, no evil thwarts God's plans God's plans even trump unbelief so brothers and sisters believe believe in the one he sent and in the word that he gives a word that is for your good a word that sets you free and rejoice and give thanks in the one whose plans are never frustrated and who is always working for Your good. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we thank You for these wonderful truths that we have seen from Your Word. Father, we confess those pockets of unbelief projecting onto You a caricature that is not who You are. And as a result, choosing our sin rather than choosing the goodness that you have for us. Forgive us. Forgive me. And Father, if there are those who are living, not just wrestling and struggling with unbelief, but living in flat-out unbelief, oh, Father, may they see the truth that sets them free. May they embrace it and align their lives to it no matter what that might mean no matter what disruption that might cause, because it's for their good. Because You are good. And Father, we thank You for this wonderful truth that in the midst of a world that sometimes feels as if it's spinning out of control, as if evil is reigning and gaining the upper hand, Father, we as the church We want to fight against it. We want to live lives of righteousness and promote lives of righteousness and justice, but we need not despair. Knowing that You, the sovereign, unchanging God, nothing can thwart Your plans. Oh, Father, encourage us, embolden us, calm us with that reality this morning. Father, take your word in the lives of those who have just heard it, accomplishing your good purposes, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.